The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name for that truth because we have nothing to do with it. We do not conjure up strength so that we don't fail. We do not make you strong so that you are able to secure us. A Christian's hope never fails because you are our hope and you never fail to accomplish your purposes. And so that which we have hoped in, your determination to accomplish your purposes is sure. You, our hope, never fail, and so our hope never fails. Bless your name for that. It is of your grace through and through. Bless your name for it. Lord, I ask you now that you would come and put your hand on us as a people here as we sit before you under your word. I ask you to assure and reassure us that your hand does indeed rest on us, does indeed lie beneath us to support us and uphold us and carry us all the way home. Assure us of that. Comfort us with that truth. Lord, open your word by your spirit now. Come, preach, illumine, change. Lord, we need you. So I ask your spirit, Lord, to run through this room now and to calm us, to draw our attention away from distraction, to draw us to your word, to give us clarity about it, to mature us and grow us, to build your church and to honor your name. That's what we pray for. That's what we ask for. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, Jim, are you closing the door there? Yes, he is. We return this morning to our study of the book of First Samuel, giving our attention to chapter 23, and this chapter, like those before it and after it, focuses on David running from King Saul, who is wickedly bent on killing this upstart rival to his throne. That's how he sees David, as an upstart rival. We, as we've been reading along and following along, we know that this David is the one on whom God has put his hand, the one on God has anointed him, has poured out on him his spirit, and has said, you are the one that I have raised up to be king over my people Israel. He's the chosen one of God, so we know that. But Saul only sees him as a rival and wanting first and foremost to hold on to his own authority, to hold on to his own power, is against God and against God's work and against God's man, David. That came out in graphic detail two weeks ago when we were in chapter 22. Previously, David had, as he'd started to flee away from Saul, had sought out help in the city of Nob, where the the tabernacle was and the high priest was. He'd gone there to seek help from 
from God. And the high priest at the time, Ahimelech, not knowing that Saul was after David, gave him that help, gave him bread, gave him the sword of Goliath, interceded with him and asked God for guidance. All done innocently. But in a jealous, paranoid rage, Saul had heard about this and had summoned all the priests to himself, 85 men and boys, he'd summoned them all to himself, had accused them of, of treachery, treason essentially, and without evidence had slaughtered them all in their innocence. Actually, he'd used a foreigner named Doeg because his own men realized the atrocity of this. To strike at the priesthood was to strike at those who were representatives both of the people of God and representatives of God himself. And they were appalled at it and wouldn't do it. And so he used Doeg and didn't stop there, went a step beyond and sent Doeg to the town itself and took the life of everything that drew breath. He wouldn't do such a thing to the true enemies, the Amalekites, but he was plenty willing to do it to Israelites when it was about his own power. It's an atrocity. He wiped them all out, all except one man, like the Lord had prophesied. Decades before, he had prophesied in judgment against Eli that he wipe out his whole house, save one man. And we saw the great mystery, the great irony in this, and that while this wickedness is being done by Saul, it actually is fulfilling the Lord's judgment against Eli. Judging the house of Eli, saving one man, the priest Abiathar, who fled to David for protection. That's where chapter 22 ends. And those last, those last verses, the last events of chapter 22, the attack on the city of Nob, are happening simultaneously with the events at the beginning of our chapter, chapter 23 today. Which creates a great ironic tension here. We have the king of Israel slaughtering Israelites to try to capture and kill a man who actually is fighting to defend Israelites at the same time. Tells us a lot about who they are and what they think of God and what they think of the people of God. But what's going to rise out for us out of this text today is not so much what these two men, David and, uh, David and Saul, are and how they're viewing God and what they're doing for God. But what's going to rise out of the text for us today is what God is doing for them, particularly for David and by extension for us who, like David, are followers of the Lord. So we're going to look at today, God, a strong help for his people. Let me read chapter 23, and then I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand all the details before making a couple of observations. Chapter 23, verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. 
when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hikalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Ma'an in the Arabah in the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and all his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Ma'an. And when Saul heard that he, that he pursued after David in the wilderness of Ma'an, Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. The Word of the Lord, chapter 23. The chapter begins with 
David and his men, where we left them in 22, in a forest in central Judah, where he is told about, he hears about the Philistine raid, this attack on the city of Keilah. Now this town and all these other places and towns in this chapter are essentially to the south and southwest of kind of the central part of Israel, which is around where Gebeah and Bethlehem and even Jerusalem is located, right kind of in the center. And from your perspective, south and west, kind of this region down here, it's not a vast region. So from one place to another, it's 10 miles here, 8 miles there, 5 miles here. And it's not important to know which direction they're going at any given point. Just so that you have an idea of it, there are little towns in the midst of uninhabited wilderness, which is very rough country. Lots of places to hide, rocks and hills and crags and bushes and the wilderness, uninhabited, and then little towns here and there. And one of those places to the south, southwest, is this town, Keilah. And David hears that it's been attacked by the Philistines. And while Saul attacks the town of the priests to protect his throne, David attacks the Philistines to protect Israel, to save them. But first, even though he hears about this and the right course of action seems obvious, he asks the Lord, what should I do? Maybe the prophet Gad, chapter 22, they had a prophet named Gad with them. Maybe he asks through the prophet, doesn't say. But he asks of the Lord, and the Lord tells him, go, save Keilah. And he asks a second time when his men balk at that idea. You know, essentially, they're saying, we, we already have trouble here. Do we need another enemy? Good point. So he asks the Lord again to be sure that he's understood, and the Lord responds again, affirming he should go. And he uses language that's a very common metaphor, but it's used so often in this chapter that it draws one's attention. He says, go, and I will give them, the Philistines, into your hand. Common metaphor. I'll give them into your hand, meaning I will give you victory over them. I'll give them into your grasp, into your power, into your control. He controls the Philistines. He will give them into David's hand. Which is what happens. And so David saves Keilah. Then verse 6, Abiathar, the sole survivor of the massacre, arrives and he brings an ephod with him, which was an article of clothing. An ephod would, would have been an article symbolizing the priesthood. So everybody, everybody who was a priest wore a linen ephod, but then there were particular ephods worn as kind of like a vest that would have been used to inquire of the Lord and to, to ask his leading. And evidently he brings one of those types of ephods, and, and that's helpful for uh, in a moment when David realizes he needs to know some more from God. He hears Saul is coming. Saul thinks it's his lucky day that David walked into a jail cell, essentially, and now he rallies the whole army. And now he goes to Keilah. Every step of the way, Saul's an amazing guy. He brings out the whole army to go to Keilah, not to save it from the Philistines, but to destroy it so that he can get David. Every step of the way, he's, he's amazing in a bad way. But Saul's coming, thinking, David, God has given David into my hand. That's what he says in verse 7. There's that phrase again. So he comes. David, through the priest, asks, verse 11 and verse 12 both, if the men of Keilah will surrender him into Saul's hand. The Lord responds, yes, he's coming. 
And yes, they will give you up. Probably they'd heard about what happened to Nob and realized that would be them too. So they'll betray you, yes. And so he and his now 600 men leave and go out into the wilderness and Saul turns back. That's the first scene. First scene there ends, but it leads into the next scene with this transition verse in verse 14. Saul gave up this particular expedition, it says, verse 13, but he did not stop chasing David, probably through spies or small patrols wandering throughout the land. He didn't send the whole army traipsing around the wilderness. Probably used patrols and spies, and it says, continued and sought him every day. David is constantly under pressure. He seeks him every day. But God did not give David into his hand. That phrase again. On the other hand, while in the wilderness of Ziph, Jonathan found him. This is the second scene. Jonathan comes right here in the middle, between his the first larger scene where he's going to be betrayed by the people that he just saved, And the latter larger scene, which we'll see, is going to be betrayed by people who are his kinsmen in the tribe of Judah. Between these two scenes of betrayal by people, right in the middle, a person shows up to do, verse 16, to strengthen his hand in God. Jonathan arrives and gives him strength, encourages him, assures him of God's protection. You will sit on the throne. I will be the number two beside you. He assures him of that, and then he's gone. Last time Jonathan appears in the book, except at his death. That was his purpose, though, to show up and strengthen his hand. And he leaves, and it says he goes back, but David remains at Horash. And you kind of wonder if Jonathan was followed, because the very next verse, the Ziphites go to Saul and say, Jonathan, let us. I don't quite say that, but David is in Horash. Come down, O king, and we will give him into your hand. Verse 20. We found him. Well, perhaps I should say we will try to give him into your hand. So we've already seen something in verse 14 about what God thinks about this. They're going to try to give him into Saul's hand, and Saul says, go and stake him out and find out where he hides and where he goes and, and then I'll come. And he comes and, and this begins, this, this tense, building, kind of elaborated chase. It develops very slowly but inexorably and in verses 24 and following you can kind of see the noose tightening around David and there's, there's seemingly there's a ridge line and, and David and his guys are on one side and Saul on the other and they're coming around and they're going to they're capture him and David's men are hurrying, it says, to try to get away. And then at that moment, verse 27, if it happened in a movie, we would all groan. Oh, goodness. Totally unbelievable. A messenger arrives, the Philistines have attacked, and Saul has to leave. Just at the last moment, just in the nick of time. What a coincidence. And so the place is called the Rock of Escape. Saul leaves to go fight the Philistines elsewhere. What a lucky coincidence. That's the passage.
I'm going to make two observations from it, focusing on what God is doing for David and, and thereby extension for us. So here's the first one. The Lord is our help as he holds us in his hand. The Lord is our help as he holds us in his hand. Or if you wanted to, you could switch that around and say, because or given that the Lord holds us in his hand, he is a great help to us. I'm using the word in the language of, of hand because it's so frequently mentioned in this chapter, particularly in relation to the question, will be David be given into Saul's hand? Saul thinks so. He, think that's, he thinks that's finally happened in verse 7. God has given him into my hand. David finds out from the Lord that it will happen if he stays in Keilah. They will give you into Saul's hand. And that's what the Ziphites are going to attempt to do, to give him into Saul's hand. So we've got this one thread, David, being given into the hand of Saul. And yet we have an, a, a contrary witness, verse 17. Jonathan assures David, the hand of my father Saul will not find you. Because, why is that the case? Not because Saul is incompetent. Not because he lacks zeal. And not because the men of Keilah are loyal and will fight to the death. And not because the Ziphites think that blood is thicker than, than water. Not because David is so very cunning and will be able to get away. Because of verse 14. Though Saul sought him every day... And though he was relentless, and though he had a huge army, and though everybody now after Nob is willing to betray David, though all of that is true, none of that matters because God did not give David into Saul's hand. It's not going to happen. God didn't do it, and it didn't happen. which is a statement about whose hand David actually rests in. The Lord holds David. It doesn't say that in any particular verse, but it's implied everywhere else. The Lord holds David and is deciding, I will not give him into Saul's hand, and therefore he will not be given. Previously, he does decide, I will give the Philistines into your hand, David, and they are given. Because he holds the Philistines in his hand too. This is the Lord who holds the whole world in his hands. And while that children's song is usually emphasizing care and love, which is true, we also need to be really clear, it's mostly about, this reality is mostly about sovereign authority and control. He holds the whole world in his hands and does whatever he pleases with everything, everywhere, always. He is the Lord. If he decides the Philistines will be given over, they will be. And if David won't be, he won't be. He holds the whole world in his hands. There is no such thing as coincidence. There is no such thing as luck. Do you realize that? No such thing as luck. 
the casting of every lot. That's how he would have inquired of the Lord, you realize. When he asks through the ephod, would have drawn out a stone, a yes or a no stone. That's the casting of lots. The priest reaches into the pocket and grabs a stone determined by God. Random? Luck? No, determined by God. He controls all of the casting of lots, or equivalent in our day, all of the throw of the dice. Every throw of every die. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as random. Which if you think about for a second, how many street corners are dice thrown and how many gambling halls are dice thrown and how many games after dinner with your kids are dice thrown? He controls everything providentially. Providentially. But he's the sovereign one. There is nothing outside of him that he waits to find out. What will these ones do? How will it go? He is the sovereign one. He holds the whole world in his hands. He determines the course of not just dice, not just individuals, but nations. He is the Lord. And here, what we are focusing on is that He holds in His hand David. And because He holds him in His hand, He is a great help to him. Very tangibly, He is a great help in this passage. He upholds David to do him good tangibly in two particular ways that, that, that are very clear. The first scene, David lacks wisdom and so asks for wisdom from heaven and God four times responds. Should I go? Yes. Really? Yes. Will he come? Yes. Will they give me up? Yes. He's revealing the heart of a king and the heart of peoples. He's revealing his planned course for the affairs of a nation. Yes, go and attack and fight for this city. He's giving guidance and wisdom, very tangibly helping David who needs guidance and wisdom. And then in the last scene, more tangible help. Hunted and chased down. What does he do? The Lord who gave the Philistines into the hand of David now gives the Philistines into another action, a raid, and brings a messenger at just the right time. He's providentially protecting David, saving him. Providentially, I've talked about this word a bunch, but for those who are near, who are new here this morning, providence in a nutshell is God's control of all of the events of the world by the use of secondary agents like people and weather and animals who act like they act, who do like they do under the control of God who is accomplishing His purposes through them. The Philistines decided it would be great to raid the land while that king is distracted. The Philistines decided that according to the plan of God. The messenger ran to chase down Saul and found him. The messenger ran to chase down Saul and found him, according to the plan and timing of God. 
all to the protection of David. God tangibly being a great help to this one that he's holding and upholding David. There's such thing as luck. There isn't such thing as coincidence. There is a sovereign God who providentially works out all of his purposes according to his counsel, Ephesians 1.11, if you want to write that down and look at it later. He is a great, great help. So consider this for yourselves. We too, you too, if you are a Christian, you are very favorably held in the hand of God. He holds the whole world in His hand, but you are very favorably held in the hand of God. And He holds you there and is therefore a great help to you only because, but gloriously because, but only because you are in Christ. Because you are in Christ who is the one God was most intent on upholding and most intent on establishing in the face of all of His enemies. Christ is the one God is most focused on delivering from and guiding and protecting and setting up on the throne of His people. He is the one God is most focused on keeping away from all destruction and bringing into the fullness of His kingdom promises. Christ. We've talked about that a bunch of times before. But because you are in Christ, you, you are are included in Him and then pulled along with Him into God's sure upholding, sure protecting, and sure guiding. So because you are in Christ, He holds you in His hand and no one is able to snatch you out of His hand. Jesus taught that, didn't He? No one. You are in His hand, held by Him. By God's determination. He has made you an object of His love, an object of His kingdom purposes. And like He would not let those kingdom purposes fail for David, and like He would not let those kingdom purposes fail for the great David, Jesus, He will not let those kingdom purposes fail for you. So what does that mean? I run off a fast sentence there. Let me stop and walk through that more slowly. God the Father says of David, You will sit on the throne. I have decided so. And so, I will hold you in my hand, lead you and guide you and protect you from all attack to put you on the throne and you will reign. Like God the Father said of God the Son, you will sit on the throne. The kingdom will come and my will will, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And He protected Him from all betrayal, raised Him up, seated Him on the throne, and He reigns and is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. The kingdom is secured in Him. And therefore, those of us in Him by faith, He says to us, to you, if you are a Christian, this is marvelous. He says to you, I will accomplish My kingdom purposes in you. Namely, I will conform you to the image of Christ. I will deliver you to reign along with Him. Christian, do you realize He promises you, you will reign with Christ. 
I will bring you safely into a glorious new kingdom free from all sin and death and loss. I will carry you completely into that kingdom where there is an inheritance that has been won for you, as First Peter 1 says, kept in heaven for you now, not perishing, not fading, not spoiled, kept there for you, and I will bring you there. It will not fail. I will. None of His kingdom purposes and none of His kingdom promises fall in relation to you. He will safely carry you into His kingdom. And He will pour out on you all of the blessings of fellowship with God in Christ. It will happen. In fact, it has already begun. You know some of it right now. Not like you will. Not like you will. But you know some of it right now. You have a down payment. A deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. If you're a Christian, you have some of that promised blessing with you now. He has not failed to deliver it to you even now. The rest is coming. No enemy will triumph over you, though the world is full of the power of enemies who seek to kill and steal and destroy you. He answers the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He answers the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He will. He does. It's coming to you. He holds you in His hand. He is a strong help to you. You are secure. He will not surrender you to evil. Now, the passage emphasizes two very tangible ways that He has helped to us. The wisdom and the guidance and the protection. So I should say a word about both of those. Part of how He upholds us and carries us into what He will bring is by giving us wisdom and guidance when we ask. And the passage does not tell us a lot of detail about how to go about asking and how it is that He gives wisdom and guidance. The point of the passage is to encourage and show that He responds. After all, none of us have a handy ephod at home. We can't do exactly what David did here. So the point is to say, ask. If you lack wisdom from heaven, ask, and he will give it. We can think a little further into that for just a moment. What's most similar to how David asks, remember David goes through an established means of asking, and God speaks in a clear and discernible way. Not just an impression. The white stone comes out or the black stone comes out. It's a clear and discernible, objective answer. And the closest thing to that for us is actually the Bible. Where God speaks His truth and guidance on every page. It is a light to us, a lamp to our path. The psalmist writes, Your word is 
a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is guidance. It is wisdom. And we should first and foremost be thinking about, Lord, open up your word to me and help me to understand it. Conform me to your perspective so that I can see things like you see them and know which way you want me to walk and which way you don't want me to walk. So first, we should be thinking about the Bible and asking God to drive the Bible into us and influence us with biblical truth. So we should come to Him humbly asking, what do you want? And then we should read and ask Him to incline us towards His revealed will. But that's not all. Say this carefully. But I have to say more than just that. Because the stories of sane, stable, biblically informed, biblically minded Christians who prayed and asked God about specifics and felt inclined to do something are far too plentiful to ignore. It's a long sentence, let me make it clear. The stories about people being guided are far too plentiful to ignore. Now, yes, the stories about people thinking they were guided are far too plentiful to ignore. And part of how we control this is we say, everything you think you've been guided into must be subject to the Word. And you should hold it lightly and not elevate it to law, dictate, and subject it to the review of Christian friends around you who also know the Word of God. Of my cautions. However, whether we use language like he led me to or I felt like I should, we have to acknowledge, we should acknowledge, God gives us leadings when we humbly ask him beneath the Bible in fellowship with other Christians, what should I do? He will incline our hearts. He is real and alive. His Spirit is real and alive. He lives within us, and He will incline our hearts one way or the other. Not every time, not always in the timing we want. And I would be remiss if I did not point that out and affirm that while carefully for the third time cautioning must be beneath the Scriptures, held loosely in fellowship with other Christians. Do, do not rip out of context what I've just said and say the Lord led me to do something when I'm going to chapter and verse say, no, He did not. And that might sound silly. I cannot tell you how many times I've had to have that conversation. The Lord led me to. No, He didn't. Do not take what I just said out of context. But please, 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 do not throw away what I just said and believe that God is not alive and does not interact with you and speak to you and guide you. He's alive and He lives with you. And when we come to Him humbly and say, Lord, help, which way should I go? Should I leave or should I stay? He will listen and speak. Maybe not in the way you expect, in the timing you expect, but He's, but he's interacting with you, Christian. He's alive. 
a great help to us. He walks through life with us in a relationship, personal. I imagine that a bunch of people want to talk to me about that for one reason or another. That's okay. We can talk about it. But I need to put that out there and say that. But the second way we see God be be a great help for those He is upholding is His determination to protect them. As David is running, 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 he has no idea what's going on with the Philistines. None. Doesn't plan it, isn't counting on it, couldn't have orchestrated it if he tried. But God does. God knows what's going on and is working it out just so that it just so happens. I don't know this to be fact, but I was reading one commentary who said from the description here of the different cities, towns and places, with some degree of accuracy, this actual spot can be located in Israel. I don't know that to be true, but I've heard that. And the great irony of it is, not the irony, the great um, aha moment in it is that there are ridges and mountains and then an open plain. He was out of rope, is the point. There isn't another hour of chase left in this because it's just open plain, open to sight to be run down. Just the right time. So it's called the rock of escape because David escaped there as God delivered him. This too for you. Perhaps I can just put it this way. Psalm 54 is for you. Again and again as we work through this book, we find a psalm that is attached to the situation that we're reading about in 1 Samuel. Psalm 54. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? Several times I've explained how it is that we get into these psalms through David, through Christ. I'm going to skip all that and just say, You can pick up this psalm as you instinctively do and read verse 1, O God, save me by Your name and vindicate me by Your might, by Your hand. O God, save me by Your name and vindicate me by Your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Listen, Lord, and come and save. And you can know because you are in Christ and because He holds you in His hand and no one can take you out of His hand and He is determined to accomplish His kingdom purposes for you that His answer is yes. I will. So you can say, verse 4, Behold, God is my helper, and the Lord is the upholder of my life. He is your protector. He helps you by upholding your life even when you die. He upholds your life and carries you safely into the kingdom. And so you can respond, verse 6, 
With the free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. He holds you in his hand, so he is your great help, which means he is your protector from all threat and all enemy, safely keeping you until the fullness of all that the kingdom is falls on you forever and ever and ever and ever and then starts forever and ever and ever. Glorious. Beloved child of God, He holds you in His hand and is your help. He will not let your foot slip, fall and fail. He will carry you into His kingdom. And as I talk like that, as I say that, I'm already starting to move into the second observation, which is shorter. It needs to be shorter. <laughs> It's closely related to the first, though. So listen carefully to the wording. The Lord is our help as He reminds us that He holds us in His hand. The Lord is our help and He holds us in His hand. That's the first point. Second thing adds in as He reminds us. He is our help as He reminds us of the reality that He holds us in His hand. I draw this from the second scene right in the middle of the passage with Jonathan. But now we should realize nothing just happens in life. The purpose and everything. So why did God send Jonathan to David? What's God doing? As we look at verses 15 to 18, it's not hard to see. Verse 15 says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. A statement that is so completely obvious, we should look at it again and ask, what does that mean? Not that David just discovered Saul's after him. The emphasis falls on saw. This, what it's telling us is this is what David is seeing, if you will. It's the vision that's filling his windshield. Saul is after me. Previous verse, day by day, every day, he's after me for my life. That's what David saw. He's seeking me, seeking me, seeking me. Why? Because he wants to kill me. Every day. That's the vision filling his windshield. And just pausing for a moment, don't we live there sometimes? With the vision of trouble filling the windshield, seeking me, seeking me, seeking me, pressing in after me for my harm. That, that's front and center. So very vivid and relentless. And then Jonathan, verse 16, Saul's son, just in case you've forgotten who Jonathan is, again, another obvious statement that, makes us ask, what, what, what's that about? Saul's son comes to tell David something, comes to tell him something, which he concludes, verse 17, <clears throat> end of the speech, he says, Saul, my father, also knows this. 
So he tells him something that Saul also knows. So we have Saul who is seeking him after David. Seeking him, seeking him, seeking him, all the while knowing something. Knowing what? What does Saul know? In the middle of this relentless hunt, what does he know? Saul knows that he cannot succeed. Saul knows that he will fail and that David will sit on the throne as king. That's what he says. You shall be king over Israel and I shall sit next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Before that, God will not give you into his hand. Saul knows this. Saul, my father, also knows this. Also. David, do you know this? That's the question. He also knows this. I know this. Do you know this? That's what he's come to say to David. He's come, verse 16, Jonathan strengthened his hand in God by telling him this. Very carefully notice this. This, this, is, not, now this is not a literal strengthening, obviously. It's a metaphor for encouraging, for, for giving an uplifting empowerment to, gave heart to. That's what Jonathan, this covenant friend, does. But notice this very carefully. It says, he strengthened his hand in God. Not strengthened his hand by taking his mind off of things and taking him to a movie and coffee afterwards. Not encouraged him by bringing him a cute comforter to make those cold nights in the cave a little more bearable. Not encourage David in friendship with a hug by talking about the good old days and how much he loved him and was for him and knew he had it in him to be cunning and to escape. I want to say that very carefully because it is true that all of those things can be good and helpful. It can be very good and very helpful and very encouraging and very much a relief. If you've ever been in a really hard situation, hard-pressed, just under pressure, it can be very helpful and very good to have somebody come along and take your mind off it and take you bowling, something that you never do or maybe something you always do and it's fun, just to take your mind off it, to go to a movie and coffee. That can be good. It can be helpful to meet somebody's physical needs by bringing them a comforter, so to speak. So those things can be good as long as we realize that it isn't the point. It's not the point of this verse, and it's not not the deal in life that we really need. If we, if we miss the point, we miss the real opportunity to strengthen the hands of the hard-pressed who see the enemy all around, relentless, and seeking, 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 seeking to kill. And if you see the seeking to kill, 
you know, the arm around the shoulders, thank you for, you know, the, the hug, but my goodness. If you don't see what the point is, you miss the chance to actually strengthen the hands. What's the point? What does Jonathan do? He strengthens him in God by saying, God holds you. He is your help. You're not going to be lost. He will not let the promises fail. Saul knows this. Do you? He reminds him of the truth and of the promise of God. David, since Saul, since Samuel poured the oil on your head, you are the anointed one. You will reign over his people Israel. For sure, it's coming. Trust him. Strengthening his hands with the truth. You will come to the kingdom. Believe. what Jonathan was sent to do. He strengthens David in God. The Lord is our help as he reminds us that he holds us in his hand. He greatly helps us by reminding us of the truth of God. He holds us, he upholds us, he leads us, he guides us, He protects us and He carries us into His promises for certain. And I would point out that He does that through a covenant friend in this case and particularly through an older covenant friend. Not required that it be that way. Most of the time, David's wandering the wilderness writing psalms. Jonathan doesn't come. And certainly we could find other instances where men or women of equal age minister to each other in this way. But I just want to point out, sometimes what we need is another person who is a covenant partner with us be it in a marriage or in a church, who understands, who agrees, who knows to speak to us what we already know but are not seeing. So may God make us a people that works like that with each other. Maybe I should say, may God make you a person who works like that with others, seeks to strengthen their hands in God. The Lord sends Jonathan to do that, to give him truth, to give David truth that will lift up his hands, even though the very next verse is going to be betrayal. May the covenant people of God be used of God to encourage the people of God. Let me pray. Lord, we need you and gloriously have you. There is good news in that. Our hope will not fail. 
And so I pray that in a passage that, at least where we ended it, ends with strengthening, I pray that You would breathe into Your people a resolve, strength, It reminds them and encourages them that You are with them, that You uphold them, that You control all things throughout all of life that are accomplishing Your purposes. Particularly Your purpose of bringing us to the blessing of the Kingdom. Build resolve in Your people. Encourage Your people with that, I pray. And as we look at the the elements of communion here, Lord, in a moment. Would you remind us of this and cause us to see in it the the blood of the covenant that you've made with us, the promise. Cause us to see in it bread for, for sustenance. Our hope is in you, Lord. Build our hope to be in you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.